So yeah, you say the wrath of God and people's blood pressure it gets up. You know anything about God being angry at all? Bothers people tremendously. I, this is what uh, progressive theologian Tony Jones says about this. He says, I think in the present day, there is a lot of discomfort with the idea that God is being wrathful. There's a lot of discomfort with the idea of divinely sanctioned violence. Sounds rough when you say it like that. But I think we have to ask ourselves is this deeper pondering question, which is, why do we? Myself included, why do we just get uncomfortable with even the mention of the wrath of God in the first place? Why does it bother us? I mean, if we're being honest here and just looking inward, every single one of us in here believes in rightness, fairness, justice on some deep fundamental level, the very core of our, our being. When we see an evil, a wicked thing go on, a terrible injustice, someone being abused, trampled on. We see that wrong and injustice. We want to right that wrong in our hearts. We have that uh, emotional response deep in our souls. We believe that here. All of us do, for being honest. So then why would it be wrong for God to have that, especially when we consider we're made in His image? Think about that. This belief that we should be outraged by injustice, that we should do something in response to an injustice is very, I mean, if you see people protesting, it's very deeply rooted in young people, especially people who march uh, the, the streets in protests of justice in our society, rightness in our society. And they go so far to say, if you don't have an angry response, if you don't get emotional and intense, then there's something wrong with you. You're doing something wrong. You should be doing something about it. You should be saying and acting in, in outrage towards injustice. If you don't do so, it would be wrong in and of itself if you have no reaction. It's interesting that a major uh, professor, secular leader who just passed on recently in this movement, she even agrees, and she would not agree with many Christian beliefs at all. She's not a Christian. She says this about justice and its relationship to love. This is Bell Hook. Without justice, there can be no love. Without justice, there can be no love. So yeah, this is, this is even her being made in God's image. She knows this. Here's my point. Once you get on board with this idea that you should be outraged and upset and do something about injustices, you want to right those wrongs, if you have that feeling inside of you, then there's no way that you can reasonably and legitimately object to a God, God having a similar reaction towards injustices. And that is what God's wrath and anger simply is, is a proper response it's a result, it's, it's an outflowing and a manifestation of his justice and a reaction to injustice. That's what all wrath is here. God's anger is simply an expression and a manifestation of his perfect justice. And we see God's love too in that as, as well. God being angry doesn't mean he's like, you know, people, when you say angry, people always like contrive of like the most horrendous, like offensive image they can conjure up. Like, I don't know, like a crazy, drunken, mentally ill dad who flies off the handle for any little, any, you know, you're walking in eggshells, any little thing he flies off the handle and gets angry, yells at family members. You know, that's what people envision when they think of God's anger or God's wrath. They think of like some sort of like, I don't know, they envision some arbitrary, ridiculous uh, dictator, some despot, you know, some North Korean dictator. Actually, Chris, Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist who passed on, he actually would, he would call the God of the Bible wrongly and offensively a celestial North Korean dictatorship. 
Uh, that's what people think of when you talk about anger or wrath or anything like that. But that cannot be the God of the Bible because God, the God of the Bible is infinitely and essentially good. The God of the Bible is maximally excellent to the highest degree. He is maximally great. So God's anger is only ever a reasonable, rational, perfectly making sense response to his infinite justice, which he has, by the way, in virtue of just being perfectly good. I love the way the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it. He says, God's wrath properly is an aspect of his love. It is because God loves human beings with a steady, unquenchable passion that he hated apartheid, that he hates torture and cluster bombs, that he loathes slavery, that his wrath is relentless against the rich who oppress the poor. If God was not wrathful against these and so many other distortions of human vocation, he is not loving. He is not loving. And it is his love determining to deal with nasty, insidious, vicious, soul-destroying evil that causes him to send his only special son. So if God is not just, then he is not loving. And if God is not loving, he is not good. And if God is not good, he is not God. He must be just. A second objection we hear about God's wrath or justice and Paul is going to answer that as we look through these verses here, is that if you believe this idea of God ever getting angry at anything or being wrathful towards anything, then that's going to make you an angry person, a bitter and wrathful person towards people's sin. You know, it'll turn you into like a Christian version of like the Punisher or Frank Castle, you know, I am vengeance or whatever it is, right? It's going to make you into a nasty, mean person. This is how notorious Bill Johnson of Bethel put it. He said, some people need a theology of an angry God to justify their anger against sinners. So that's what people think. But what we're going to see this morning is quite the opposite. In Romans 12, it's the belief that God who gets angry and shows justice. This is, this is the belief that we hold about God. This belief doesn't make us want to lash out against others, especially realizing, being fully aware, that ourselves, we have evil and good inside of us. We do evil things. We do bad things. God is perfect. And we realize that God has grace towards us and how he, how he chooses to handle his wrath this actually makes us want to love and serve God and to love and serve neighbor even more. Causes us to be opposite of wanting to get people back. Being kind of a V for vendetta kind of person here. So we're going to see this here. And we're going to see that also that God's, God's having justice is going to be a great comfort to us. Romans 12, uh, 11 through 12, we're going to kind of go through the verses here and see what God's word has to say as we look at them. It says... Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. The Holy Spirit, we're supposed to be passionate about the Lord. Serving the Lord, our passions, not to be unchecked or unbridled. It's to be in accordance with the word of the Lord. Not sort of like some sort of wild enthusiasm, but it's to be in check with serving the Lord and his word. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, easier said than done. But tribulation does grow us tremendously as Christians. It says, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. 
Now, when, when Paul says be constant in prayer, uh, that means we're to have a regular and consistent posture, a prayerful posture, consistently talking to God. We are to cry out to him. We are to praise him. We are to tell him our needs and our wants. We are to think about him, give thanks to him. We are to be in consistent communication with God. That's what prayer ultimately is, communicating with God. Because he loves you. He wants to deepen your relationship with him. He doesn't, like, I watched an SNL skit where they were making fun of a Christian woman praying all the time, and Jesus came down and said, you're praying too much, stop praying. That's not how God works. God doesn't get tired of you. He wants to be in continual relationship with you. He loves you. He doesn't want to cut off communication. Now, I want to say this. When, I, when it says pray, people have, okay, I've got to close my eyes. I've got to go like this. go to some sort of posture in order to pray. And, I mean, honestly, I pray all the time. And if I did that, people would be dead because I drive when I pray. All the, I mean, that's, I'm a, I, that's probably where most of my prayer time gets. Sometimes I'm driving on the street, driving to places and stuff. I'm praying to God. And if I were to close my eyes, it'd be like McSwerve and crash, right? Kind of thing. And so, yeah, don't do that. Um, you don't have to be in a particular posture or use a particular language like these and thou's to pray to God. People, people, a lot of people put a lot of artificial things onto prayer to make you think that. Now, if it helps to close your eyes, I mean, there are people in the Bible that do, you know, bow the knee and pray. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's my point. It's not an essential part of prayer. So you can go throughout your day with a prayerful posture in and constant and continual and consistent communication with God. We need outlets. We need to talk to somebody. That's why people always want to see a therapist. But God's the best therapist, really. I mean, if you think about it. I mean, we, we need to be in communication with the Almighty. And that's the, the point here. Romans eleven thirteen, 13. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul's point is pretty, pretty clear. We need to show care and love for those in the Christian church, brothers and sisters. And it's hard for us as Americans. We're very independent. Like, if you go to places like Africa and stuff, they're much more dependent on each other for resources, for sharing things. We like to have our own stuff and don't touch. Don't, I don't want to get, you know, get away from it. I want to do my own stuff. I don't want to be involved in your life. We have this independence feature in, in American culture. And so this is, says, no, it's not just Sundays we see each other and we say goodbye and don't talk to you the rest of the week. We're to be caring for each other in each other's lives and a part of each other's lives. And that means giving things to each other and, and having that reciprocal relationship or even self-giving sacrificial relationship in the Christian church. Second part, he says, and this is equally hard to follow, is seek to be, uh, have hospitality. Greek word for hospitality simply means just just to be, give you the literal translation, it's just to be kind and friendly to strangers. And what happens in churches that people, you know, we know it's way more, if you know somebody, it's easier to talk to them again. It's emotionally and psychologically harder to talk to somebody. You're like, I don't know what if they say something crazy to me. People think that sometimes, right? Or you get anxiety or stuff. And so we have to kind of push past those feelings and talk to, to new people because we were once a new, peop, a new person at this church as well. And we, want, we wanted to feel welcomed and experience friendliness and hospitality. And Jesus says to do it to others as you would have them do to you. And so this is something we should, we should do we should reach out to others, reach out to the stranger, because that's how the grace of God works. He reached out to us. We were more than a stranger. We were his enemy. And so part of the Christian church, the way it's always spread the gospel is through being kind and caring and friendly towards strangers rather than being in our kind of holy huddles. Romans uh, 14 or 12, 14 through 15. Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. At that time, that is as incredibly countercultural, Jesus says it, Paul says it here, 
as it was back then, they actually found like evidence of like curse tablets. People would like write curses, you know, like I guess like people people who are really into voodoo do voodoo dolls, but they would write curse tablets to people that wronged them. So you know, it's like you hit me, I hit you back. You know, v for v for vendetta, punisher kind of stuff here. You know, that was their mentality too, kind of vigilante. If you if you hurt me, I'm gonna curse you. Now it says, bless those who persecute you. you we're to pray for them. We're to we're to we're to want their well-being to be to know Jesus people who persecute us. It says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Christians are called to be empathetic. When, when you're going through a hard time, we, you go into the feelings of another, you share the feelings of another person, you, you, you cry with them, and you also, when they, go, when they have a really good thing happen, you might think, well, it's really hard to cry with somebody. It's really, um, it's really, really difficult to, or it's really, it's really, it's really hard to cry with somebody, but it's really easy to rejoice with somebody. Well, not if you're jealous of them, <laughs> you know, then it's not so easy to, to, to rejoice with them. So we're to, we're to do both. When someone, something happens good, when God blesses somebody, we're to rejoice with them. We're to share in their feelings. If someone, you know, loses a loved one, goes through a divorce or goes through something very painful and difficult, we're, we're to, we're to take on their feelings, share their feelings with them, pray with them, Show compassion, mercy, and empathy to them. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the low, lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Don't be arrogant. Don't be full of yourself or prideful is a basic principle here. Now, when you read all these together, it may seem unrelated at first. It says, okay, yeah, what you got to do, got to bless your enemies. Don't be prideful. Be giving. Be hospitable. Be patient. Be kind. Be excited about Jesus, too. Pray all the time. You know, it's like, wow, I don't do any of that perfectly. I don't know any person who does that perfectly. We don't. And yet, these are things we should strive for as Christians, but we have to realize we're not going to do these things 100% perfectly. We can't in this life. And so it's important to remember the context where we're, where we're reading this from. We read this, we cannot forget about the context. The ultimate motivation, why we're driven to want to even do these things in the first place, is if you just read people's commands, it's just like, wow, that's a lot of stuff. And I don't do any of it like perfectly, so it's just it can be heavy. But what's the ultimate joy and motivation for wanting to guide our lives and strive in this direction? And Paul has already told us. He has guided us towards that motivation in Romans 12.1. Very beginning of the chapter, he says, after summarizing the teaching of Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the mercies of God here is what drives us. Now, you might be hearing that, and you're like, what is this, Nate? Why are you talking about the wrath of God then? What's this all about? How does this relate to God being wrathful or getting angry towards sin? And how does this relate to transforming our lives? What's the point here? Well, recall from our previous study in the Romans, a central part of the book, the main point, the main problem in Romans chapter 1 was people living in rejection and rebellion and unrepentance, imperfectly, sinfully, in rebellion against God, that God has wrath against them. This is what Romans 1.18, this is the main problem. This is the main issue in the book of Romans is the wrath of God. It's repeated in every chapter and it's kicked off in Romans 1.18, the very beginning. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so, as I said, it's repeated over and over again, this consistent theme. Romans 2, wrath of God. 
Romans 3 mentions the wrath of God, and, and this is this problem. And this is, this is the issue here. I'm going to summarize the issue in the book of Romans. And how in the world can we ever stand before an infinitely holy and just God? And if he's infinitely holy and just, then he hates perfection. He hates any evil and sinfulness. He, he's perfect, so he's got to hate bad things. He, he can't stand wickedness. And keep in mind that wrath is a manifestation of infinite, perfect justice. And, you know, I can hate all the injustice and the evil. I can be morally outraged at things that occur and get mad. But I've got to be delusional and self-righteous if I don't think me also. I'm, I, we have to look inward and be honest and say, I am evil and unjust too. I mean, just your thoughts let alone your actions, your thoughts. If you look inward and think of your thoughts, they're not perfect. And your actions too, by the way, not perfect. Not even for a single day. And yet God knows them. But the amazing thing about Romans is that God does provide a solution for us here. The problem of wrath, as we see, as we've read through Romans 3, is worked out in the, in the person of Jesus. The idea here is that God has provided a way out, an escape route from his wrath by, by Jesus taking on flesh the person of Christ, he's taken on flesh to take on this infinite punishment, the wrath of God in our place on the cross. And so this is the central mercy then in Romans 12.1. This is the mercy he's talking about. The mercy is that God, if you trust in Jesus this morning, God is never angry at you, ever. He is never, never, never wrathful you. His wrath and anger was quenched and satisfied on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus screamed out, it is paid in full. It's all finished up. It is finished. And so this is how Romans 5.9 provides a solution to this paradox. I mean, how, does, how do we, as we as sinful, wicked, broken people that fail every day, how do we stand before an infinitely perfect, holy and just God? This is how Romans 5.9 solves that. It says, Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. When you say you're saved, you're saved from the wrath of God. So Jesus Himself could bear and withstand this infinite wrath of the Father because Jesus Himself is also infinite God. So he could take and withstand that infinite punishment placed on his shoulders on the cross. He could withstand that. He could withstand it within his infinite being and withhold all of your sins, my sins, all the people's sins. It says God's soul of the world. The sins of the world is placed on his shoulders. And the most agonizing moments that any person will ever experience, he experienced that for us as a classic Christian song goes in Christ alone. Till on that cross as Jesus died... The wrath of God was satisfied. Now, people find it very offensive that, that the Father, God would punish and be wrathful towards Jesus on that cross that he will never be angry at you and me ever again. God's not angry at you if you trust in him. But see, the thing is, I, I think Romans 5.9 is very clear, but there was a denomination called the PCUSA. It doesn't hold to the Bible being the word of God. It denies that at almost every point. It doesn't hold to the inspired word of God. But this denomination, um, they wanted to take out in Christ alone this, that, that phrase, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was, was satisfied. They wanted to take it out. And so the, they had a denomination, so they could put it in their hymn book and everything. Denomination asked the authors, Keith, uh, Getty, and uh, Stuart Townsend, if they could change the lyrics to this. 
till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So it's okay to talk about love, but you can't talk about justice or wrath or anything like that. And what's interesting is that Townsend and Getty rightly responded by saying, you, you mustn't change those lyrics. You cannot change those lyrics because for them it was not a small change. It was a major part of the Christian faith, as Paul says here in Romans 5, 9. That's what we're saved from. I can't, they said, I can't compromise on that. I can't back down off that at all. And so in response, the PCUSA voted to take the entire song out of their hymn book. To do with the whole thing. It's a beautiful song. Because they could not bear and handle to hear the lyrics that taught that the death of Jesus was a satisfaction of the wrath of God. They couldn't handle it. The wrath of God gets people all hot and bothered. According to the USA Today article, it's, it's titled, Presbyterian's Decision to Drop the Hymn Stirs Debate. This is what a member of the denomination spoke about. This is about removing the, this hymn from their hymn book. That lyric comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. The cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. The problem with this is that wrath is not a bad thing. When you understand that it's merely a response to the debt of perfect justice, which God is just. He's the greatest, so he must be just. And Jesus, by the way, is not like some random bystander that God's like, I'll pick out this guy, that sounds good. No, it's not some random bystander that the Father just picked out to sacrifice. Rather, Jesus himself is God. He is God Almighty. And as God Almighty, He freely chose to take on the debt of the world on His shoulders. He chose Himself to take on the debt of justice so that we can be free. We can be healed. We never have to worry ever if God doesn't love us anymore. We know that He does because of Jesus. Look to Jesus. We never, as Christians, have to worry about God being angry at you. He's never angry at you because it's all been taken care of in the cross of Christ. Because He loves Loves us so much, he freely chose to take on the wrath the Father was going to put on him. So that God was against Jesus on that cross, on those moments on the cross, so that he will never be against us. It had to be Jesus because Jesus is only infinite God. He is infinite God so he can save us from the infinite wrath of God. Only God can save you from God. And so when viewed from this vantage point, it's nothing wrong or offensive about this from a, a rational standpoint. There's nothing wrong with this. And I, I really appreciate the way that uh, William Lane Craig puts it. He says, if an employer, and this is actually a true thing in, in actual law, if an employer out of personal concern for his employees wishes to act mercifully by voluntarily being held vicariously liable for his employer's employee's wrongdoing. So a guy on the job, you know, your boss sees you, you do something that causes a legal problem as you're working, your boss can then choose to take on whatever lawsuit that you committed while on the job. So it says liable for his employee's wrongdoing. How is that unjust or immoral. If the boss wants to do that, if he chooses to take on your lawsuit, he can do that as your employer. In the same way, if Christ voluntarily, cho he's choosing, invites our sin to be transferred or imputed to him for the sake of our salvation, what injustice is there in that? Who is to gainsay? Craig puts it. And that's amazing because we deserve that punishment. But God, out of mercy, just mercy, took that punishment which was coming to us. And that truth, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I, whenever I do something wrong, which is every day, by the way, if you're, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have perfect thoughts. You don't either, by the way. Just be clear about that. Uh, 
I mean, you just think about your day and, and you know, people, people feel like if something goes wrong in their life, I get this all the time from people. Well, you know, God must be mad at me or God's angry at me. That's a, I, I've heard that from so many Christians that God is mad at me because I didn't do this right when I was 18 or 19. And, you know, I, I've, I've had a rough past. I've done bad things in the past. And you think, like, is this happening right now because God's punishing me? Is he angry at me? And we naturally think that because we know inside, we look in where we're like, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Not all of it's good. We know we're in trouble if God is holy and perfect. And so people will naturally think, like, I, I expect coming to me the wrath of God. I, I, I feel that sometimes when I mess up, when I say something hurtful to somebody I love. I, I feel as if I deserve punishment. I feel like God's upset at me. And so I expect judgment. But the gospel reminds us that we get the exact opposite of that. We instead get eternal love, grace, unconditional love, and mercy in Christ. And so it's amazing. We expect to be punished but instead, we get the exact opposite, and we forget that because we so easily go into our old operating system of thinking, oh, God's mad at me. I did something wrong. I'm in trouble. Uh-oh, he's mad at me again. But in Christ, he never can be. And just that truth, reminding yourself of the gospel over and over and over again, that he's never angry. It's already been taken care of. It is finished 2,000 years ago. That just totally transforms you. That just totally, fundamentally heals you on every level. And I love how this book puts it in a human level. It was a movie, too. I love the movie. Just Mercy um, by Brian Stevenson. He explains the transformation when, when, when people receive undeserving mercy, which we all do, by the way. He says the power of just mercy is that it belongs to the undeserving. It's when mercy is least expected, in my case, in your case, too, that it's the most potent, strong enough to break the cycle of victimization and victimhood, retribution and suffering. It has a power to heal the psychic harm and injuries that lead to aggression, violence, abuse of power, and mass incarceration. So it's such good, unbelievable news that we have eternal mercy and that we don't, we don't have to lash out on people when they hurt us because God will never lash out on us. Paul goes on to describe how this transforms us by the mercies of God in Romans 12, 17. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We can break the cycle of getting people back by reminding the gospel, because God in Christ will never get you back. He showed you just mercy. What God did in Jesus is he absorbed all of the debt that you have committed against God, that you've sinned against an infinite being. You deserved an infinite punishment. He absorbed that debt on the cross. And so we, when people hurt us and harm us and break our hearts, we absorb that debt in ourselves, that pain in ourselves, and forgive them as God in Christ has forgiven us. People wrong us. That's how we respond in kindness. That's how we can follow these very difficult commands. We, we strive towards them by remembering the gospel. Romans 12, 18 through 19. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. I've heard pastors and people say it's a misunderstanding. Well, oh, this is good because I don't have to have peace with all people, so I can kind of pick and choose who I want to have peace with. I don't want to have peace with that guy. I don't like him. You know, that's not what it's saying. It says depends on you. It means we should try to be peaceful towards everybody, but no matter how nice you are to somebody, some people are still going to hate you. And so it says still be kind to them, but you can't control an, another person's reaction. That's the point of this verse. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. 
but leave it to the wrath of God. So the wrath of God is the justice here. It is avenging, according to nearly all scholars. That's how they take the verse. For it is written, vengeance is mine, God's. So God is the one who has vengeance. I will, I will repay, says the Lord. God's not Barney. He is just. So he has vengeance on wickedness. So Christians are not called to be Frank Castle with the Punisher. We're not called to be Batman and say, I am vengeance. We're not called, you know, I mean, these movies get a lot of money, by the way. That's, that's why it's hard for us to fault because American society is very vindictive. I mean, John Wick, Kill Bill, those made a lot of money. Those were, people like those movies. I mean, they're going to have like a ninth one. Of, uh, it's like turning out to be like the Fast and the Furious. There's so many John Wicks now. I don't even, I've lost count. You just, I mean, and I actually like the series. I don't like Fast and the Furious, by the way. This got too many, Vin Diesel, whatever. You know, but I mean, they make all these movies and make money because vengeance, getting back somebody, you know, in John Wick's case, for, I guess shooting your, your wife's, you know, your dying wife's dog and messing up your cool car. You know, getting back at somebody feels good. You're like, yeah, get him back. Go for it. You know, and so, yeah, that's what the, those kind of feel good, vindictive moments that makes these verses hard to keep. It makes us, it's difficult. It's very, it's very counter cultural for us because there's something inside of us that sometimes we, we switch into this mode of thinking. You believe it's virtuous. Someone harms your, your child or your spouse, your little child. You know, we want to turn into Frank Cass, we want to take justice into our own hands, become a vigilante kind of thing. Now, this verse is not saying, I want to be clear, this is not saying that we shouldn't defend our family or loved ones when someone's trying to attack us in our homes or on the street or whatever it is. The Bible does not promote pacifism, that we should never under any circumstance not bear arms or we should never fight back. It's not saying that. What this is teaching, if someone has done harm or damage to those whom we have loved and the damage has been done, we shouldn't pull an avenge sevenfold on them. We shouldn't get back at them kind of thing. We, we, we shouldn't say, okay, that guy hurt my son. I'm going to find him down a dark alley and throat punch him, you know, kind of thing. No, that's not the way we should go about things. We should be ready to definitely defend our family if some, and to prevent damage and harm and loss of life, but we should not seek it out as a vigilante justice. We're going to read in the next chapter how God as a state does, you know, have ministers or magistrates who do seek out justice, government officials, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's to do with the power that God invests in a proper state. So that our posture as Christians is to trust and to rest in the justice of God. To work out this, to work out the punishment of the wicked not to take it in our own hands. And it's, it's hard because we want to take it into our own hands. We don't like to trust. We like to do things ourselves. It's the American way. This is so hard for us to trust in God, to trust in His justice. And the reason why it is so hard, and it's a problem that goes all the way back to the Garden of, of uh, Eden with Adam and Eve. It's hard because we love to play God. We love to take things into our own hands, make our plans, disregard God's plans and commands, and do things our way. Every time we sin, we do that. But especially in these cases. But you see, if we rest in God and His justice, the burden is off our shoulders. We don't have to be God. And there's a freedom and a comfort that comes from that. Like never before, there's a peace that I, it's not my job in life to right every wrong, but that's God's. I do like the way Ed Welch puts it. He says, what do you, what do you need to do if resentment builds? Release your offender from your judgment and entrust him to God's. Entrust him to God's. It's amazing 
Uh, this verse, because we don't uh, find just comfort in the mercy of God. If you read the verse, we're also as Christians to find comfort in the justice of God. That at the end of the day, he will right all the wrongs that people who are like Hitler, unrepentant to the end, or evil North Korean dictators will have to stand before God and give an account for the atrocities they've committed, the justice. God will have his day of justice at the end of time, the second coming of Jesus. And God won't let those who rebel all their lives in abusing, oppressing people in ruthless, unrepentant ways, he won't let them get away with that. You see, if God doesn't exist, as Hitchens thought, there is no final justice for anybody. The outcome is the same for Mother Teresa or Hitler. And if God is just like a big, giant, Grandpa or Mr. Rogers or a Barney Purple Dinosaur with no wrath, then there is no final justice for anyone. Every wicked, unrepentant abuser and oppressor gets off the hook. And I'm sorry, that is far more disturbing to my soul than a God who gets angry at injustice. But our response and duty here in verse 20 and 21, our response is to show kindness and love to our greatest of enemies. It says... To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but by overcome evil with good. So Paul is not saying, hey, you know, you should act uh, really nice to your enemy. So, you know, you can put more wrath on him from God. So God will punish him more. That's not what he's saying. People have thought that before. Like, oh yeah, be really nice to your neighbor. So, you know, he'll get a greater punishment. That's not the idea here. Paul is not saying that God will literally pour hot coals on his head either. Scholars are agreed. It's pretty unanimous, believe it or not. Um, but this is quoting from Proverbs. And it may be hard for us to understand, but it helps to understand the background and the context of this. This proverb was written, uh, it was, it's, it's an Egyptian uh, expression from Egyptian culture. And it was picked up by the Proverbs where people who wanting to show repentance, they would carry on their heads a bowl with hot burning coals to show how sorry and truly repentant they were. This was, of course, represent and signify true repentance because of the burning pain of shame and guilt for their past deeds. It showed that they have changed their minds about their, their, their past misdeeds and evil things they've done. So Paul is basically saying here, kill them with kindness. Not literally kill them. You know what I mean. It would be, you know, not advocating for violence. Like, wow, pastor said to kill people. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we are to, we are to overcome evil with good. And so, yeah, when you act nice towards a, a person at work or uh, wherever you're at a, at a store and they're being mean to you and you are kind and extra kind back, by the way, that causes a person to look inward and say, what about this person is so different? What am I doing with my life? Maybe I should reevaluate my, my life. Maybe there's something to this Christianity stuff. That this person's being so kind to me and I've been just a nasty person. Now, Paul is not claiming that if, you do the, if you're nice to every enemy, it's like, oh, I'm a Christian now. You're like, someone's like, you know, you're, you're ugly and, I don't know, <laughs> some insult, you know. And you're like, I love you. They're like, oh, I believe in Jesus now. We're good to go. No, it's not, he's not saying that. He's saying that you're planting a seed and that God does use those seeds to transform in time. It may not be an immediate thing. It may not be in every case, but it's a general principle he's laying out here. And his final point, we'll close with this, looking at a few things. 
is don't overcome evil with more evil. You're just, you're just fighting fire with fire. You need, a, you need a different, you need something else other than fire to fight. You can't just do more fire. More stuff's going to burn down. You need to fight fire with water, with a different thing. Because if you hurt somebody back, you're just perpetuating the cycle of hurt and brokenness. That's all you're doing. You're hardening that person against Christ and Christianity and God even more by perpetuating this hurtful cycle. But that we need the gospel, we need grace and forgiveness to break the cycle. The best example... Well, I have two examples. Is one of how a Christian man treated a murderer. But not just any murderer. A man who murdered his own daughter. I can't even imagine that for a second. But this is an incredible story. It's true, by the way. You can watch it on YouTube. Gary Leon Ridgway, a 54-year-old, pleaded guilty for the killing of 48 women. This would make him the biggest serial killer in all of U.S. history. He agreed to plead guilty and help law enforcement find the rest of each of the remains of the women he had murdered. Many of the relatives of these poor women confronted Ridgeway in the courtroom. I mean, it's just a scene. I mean, you see them, and they're screaming at him, yelling. As a natural, he killed their, their, their sisters. I mean, I mean their, their, their daughters. I mean, this guy's a maniac. And they're like, yeah, I hope you rot in hell forever. You know, they're saying, you've destroyed my life by murdering some I loved and cherished so much. They were so bitter and sad, understandably. I mean, this guy murdered their mothers, their daughters, their sisters. This guy was a maniac. And you know what he's doing the whole time? They're screaming at him. I hope you burn in hell and rot in hell forever. He is sitting there like a cold, emotionless Robot, as they're just vindictively telling him how they, how he took something so precious out of their life, something they valued so much, and that they hope and they prayed that he was going to suffer for it. The whole time he just sits there, this emotionless, cold demeanor. And the man who was a Christian came up to the podium to speak publicly to Ridgeway. This is his words. He said, "Mr. Ridgeway." There are people here who hate you. I am not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe. And that is what God says to do, and that is to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. And Ridgeway, a cold-hearted, evil murderer, broke down and wept. So you try to fight hurt and brokenness with even more hurt and brokenness. It's just going to cause more and more, and it won't change anything. It just hardens and hardens and hard. We need something. We need grace to intervene and break the cycle of hurt, forgiveness to break the cycle with kindness and gentleness, to break that cycle and to remind us how God has treated us first in Christ. Remind ourselves over and over and again that, that we can forgive the inexcusable in others because God in Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us. It's not easy. Easier is than done. I, I grant this so hard. Can't even imagine if someone took my daughter like that, just to forgive him. Can't imagine it. And I, I love the way C.S. Lewis so aptly puts it. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have to forgive somebody. Isn't that true? And I'll close with this last example. Probably the best example of difficult forgiveness and grace, and this is the best example 
of good overcoming evil. And that's the example of Jim Elliot and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot and his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, were missionaries to a very violent indigenous tribe. This tribe had murdered many people that came into contact. So they, they knew this tribe was bad, very bad. This violent tribe, these people have never heard the gospel, never heard about Jesus, because if you go to them and they'll kill you. And Jim did his best to send gifts to them and to placate them beforehand, to make contact with them, so that he could preach the gospel to them. So he goes with, along with, with, with different men, and his wife Elizabeth Elliot stays behind. But before he could do that, um, and even for the men were missionaries, they were savagely murdered before they could preach the gospel. They were savagely murdered by these tribesmen as they went down on a plane to meet them. They were murdered. Now, I'm sure, as we would all imagine, it would have been so easy for his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, to hate these men, that murder her husband in cold blood. I mean, could you imagine them killing your spouse? I mean, you want to, like, imagine getting them back and being vindictive. It comes very natural for us, doesn't it, to do that. You know, she, to, to want to never forgive them and to hold it against them in the rest of her life to seek retaliation. But by the grace of God, Elizabeth Elliot risked her own life and met with the very same tribesmen that murdered her husband. She forgave them, and because of her act of forgiveness, her greatest enemies, the men that murdered and speared her husband, became Christians, and so many in the tribe converted to Christianity. That is amazing. And that is a perfect example of good overcoming evil. And if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, God is will over overcome everything in the world to get to know you and love you forever. He did it all for you by sending His only Son to die for you, all your sins. If you trust in Him this morning, He will overcome the evil and the brokenness in your heart for your good and for His glory. Let's pray and give thanks to God.